year. Is it true they leave in show business in a year? No. Not as far as we know, anyway. Unless we get shots or something. I do believe if you dream about a relative who's crossed over, then that is them saying hi. I really do think that. Every time he smells human, like a fire from a far off way, and you know, he'll, uh, he'll just get really disgusted and hide. And he just tries to stay away from people. I can relate to that. <laughs> this is Strange Music Stories. I'm your host, Chris, and this is the second episode on this podcast channel. Now, um, I am a little late in terms of posting this episode. I said two weeks, so shame on me. Uh, it's been a little longer, but nonetheless, I'm still pretty excited to discuss this topic. And, uh, yeah, before I get, in fact, I, I'm going to say, I think I'm a little more excited to discuss this one than even the 27 club, maybe because it's a little more controversial in my opinion. Um, so yeah, let's start discussing this. Now I, I discussed the Rolling Stones at great length in the previous one of the 27 club and in particular Brian Jones, but there was a serious incident that I left out regarding them, the Stones, and I wanted to discuss it here and now. So, and that topic would be the Altamont Free Concert, which uh, Mick Jagger wanted to host. But before we get into that, I want to give a little backstory into the Hells Angels because they seem to be a very pivotal uh, point in this whole incident, I would say. All right, I don't want to give too much away for those that don't know about it. Maybe a lot of you do. In any event, it's, it's interesting. All right, so... Um, the beginnings of the Hells Angels, yeah. They were a biker game that started at the end of World War II when specific GIs returned home only to feel displaced and listless in modern society. Motorcycles were a really cheap form of transportation, and it gave those former veterans some excitement who didn't want the conventional American dream. I, I guess, you know, they didn't want to settle down, didn't want the household, didn't want the family. They just wanted to live on the road and, you know, party it up. So, and that's what these individuals did. They, these individuals would band together, take long bike trips together, and party, and then go back to their 95, I guess. One of these groups started a club, and they called themselves the Pissed Off Bastards. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I guess that says it all right there. Yeah. No. <laughs> I.e., don't want to piss off these bastards. Anyway. There was a, an American uh, motorcycle. Oh, there was a convention called the American Motorcycle Association, also known as AMA, which was held annually. And on July fourth, nineteen forty-seven, in Hollister, California, the pissed-off bastards—yes, their name again—acted like complete menaces by starting riots through the streets. Local law enforcement arrested a bunch of these fellows, and that's that. Apparently, some eternal conflict arose in these outlaw clubs, and one club emerged as being coined the Hells Angels. Uh, and the, that was founded in 1948 in Fontana, California. Interestingly enough, though, no one really knows where the title of the biker game really came from. So yeah, the Hells Angel name, it's, it's kind of obscure, just one of those things, I guess, lost in history because nobody really can say for sure who or why uh, the biker gang decided on that name, the Hells Angels. So that's kind of interesting. All right. 
So up until this point, I guess, uh, the gangs weren't really orchestrated or connected in any way. It just kind of was loose. So it wasn't really until this man named Sonny Barger took the reins from Oakland and led the biker gang from obscurity to some prominence. Hint, that name may come up again in this episode. (laughs) Okay. In 1963, the Angels got serious notoriety from the public as being degenerates after a few members raped two underage girls in Portville, California. They also started selling drugs and from there became even more feared by the public and law enforcement agencies. Fun fact, actually, Hunter S. Thompson lived with the Hells Angels for a year and wrote a book about them, Sonny Barger, and his experiences. He entitled the book Hells Angels, The Strange and Terrible Saga of the Outlaw Motorcycle Gangs. His book was published in 1966. All right, so let's transition from talking about the Hells Angels to Altamont. Right, so the Altamont Free Concert. The Rolling Stones wanted to host a free event as a result of many fans criticizing the shows from their 1969 American tour, starting November 7, 1969, ending on December 6, 1969, were way too expensive. In addition, the Stones wanted the free event to be held somewhere in San Francisco, right at the end of the aforementioned tour they were just finishing up. Apparently, there was a lot of confusion as to where the show would be held initially. The Stones originally wanted to be set in the practice field of San Jose State University. However, the city of San Jose declined because it already held a big event and didn't want to do another one. Next on the list as a possible location for the show was Golden Gate Park in San Francisco. This too fell through as there was a conflicting event in the form of a football game between the Chicago Bears and the San Francisco 49ers at Kezar Stadium, which was also located in Golden Gate Park. If you were imagining the third time is always the charm, in this case, you'd be sorely mistaken, especially when they turn to Sears Point Raceway in Sonoma, California. Yet again, this didn't hold water. The company that owned the raceway was asking for $300,000 upfront cash deposit from the band to rent out the space, and once again, the event had to find another location. I don't know why that was such a big fortune for them, but I guess it was. And at this point, personally, I I mean, I'm not a superstitious person, but I would say there's some red flags and maybe the universe is trying to tell you something, maybe throw some signs your way, but ambitions, I guess, somewhat of a drug and onward they marched. So finally, they turned to Dick Carter, who owned the Altamont Raceway located in Tracy, California. And it was apparently changed to this location two days before the actual festival took place i.e. the change took place on Thursday, December 4th. All right, so the Altamont Free Concert was held by the Rolling Stones on Saturday, December 6th, 1969, and as already mentioned a few times now, was completely free to the public. The Stones also brought on to the bill special supporting acts, and they were as follows. Santana, who opened, Jefferson Airplane, the Flying Burrito Brothers, Crosby, Still, Nash, and Young, Grateful Dead, who actually decided to leave and not play shortly before their time to form for reasons that should be discussed soon enough, and headlining the Rolling Stones. Alright, so the Stones hired three directors to film and document the concert, and their names were David Mazels, Albert Mazels, and Charlotte Zawarin. With the footage they shot with, they went on to create a 1970 documentary named Give Me Shelter, which came from a Stone song on the Let It Bleed album, and that was released on December 5th, 1969. 
And apparently Jagger at that time thought his band was so big that they could put on a show which would rival that of the Woodstock Music and Art Fair, or informally just known as Woodstock, held on a dairy farm in the Catskills Mountains of southern New York State. The Woodstock Festival started on August 15th and ended on August 18th, 1969, as partially discussed in the previous podcast. It is estimated that over 400,000 people came to the three-day event of Woodstock, Apparently, Jagger wasn't too far off from assuming they could match it because they wound up drawing 300,000 people to the Woodstock West, as it seemed to be coined by Jagger and fans. Also, the Speedway reportedly could only fill 12,000 cars, but they needed space for approximately 80,000. Since it was a last-minute choice to book the Ultimate Raceway, everything had to be thrown together very quickly by the road crew. In fact, it was 30 degrees outside while everything was being built up, and I'm sure the that was not fun for the hundreds of roadies that were working for those two days and nights. The rushing resulted in a lack of portable toilets slash facilities and medical personnel. Also, the stage was built on the bottom of a slope rather than on top, and it was only 39 inches or 3.25 feet off the ground. Since the stage was so low to the massive crowd, the Rolling Stones needed to hire security. And what better security than the Hells Angels? Yep, the ones we previously talked about. Rather than paying the notorious biker gang in cash, the rock band decided to pay them in $500 worth of beer. They naturally were drinking heavily during the concert and started getting aggressive with fans. The fans were not complete victims either for that matter, as there were tons of drugs, including but not just limited to LSD and amphetamines, which apparently prompted altercations between each other, the performers, and even the angels. Jagger, right off the bat, got slugged in the face by a quote-unquote fan just as the Stones arrived and disembarked from their helicopter to the huge concert gig during the day. The footage can once again be seen on the Give Me Shelter documentary. Now, I'm not a brain surgeon, and somebody who will be mentioned on this list shortly probably did need a brain surgeon, but maybe this is just the universe again tapping you on the shoulder and saying, you know what, get on the chopper, don't play this gig, go home, call it a day. Uh, you know what, I retract that. There's already tons of people there probably at this point, so who knows what would have happened if they didn't do the show, you know, just said everything was canceled. So it's it's a, I guess it is kind of a catch-22 at this point. But nonetheless, let's see how this all unfolds. You know, I, and that's audacious. Somebody actually punched him in the face just getting off the chopper. Man, I can't even fathom something like that. Like, somebody just randomly punches you in the face. Like, hey, I love you, punch. Give me a break, man. That's That's crazy. You're going to take time out of your life to go see a band you apparently love and admire only to sucker punch the lead singer in the face. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. No, it doesn't make any sense at all. In fact, even if you didn't like the band, why would you waste your time to see them at all? Just just stay at home. Don't even waste your time. It doesn't make sense at all. Certainly, this guy was operating all cylinders upstairs and was a real class act. Although, it, it can't be much worse than what Chapman did to Lennon. Oops, I think I just betrayed a future topic. Anyway, moving on. Fans were also throwing beer bottles on the stage during one of the local acts' performance, and one managed to land on Denise Jukes. I hope I'm pronouncing your name correctly. J-E-W-K-E-S, a member of a band named the Ace of Cups. This actually managed to fracture her cranium, and she had to have a chunk of her skull removed. The chunk of the skull was apparently the size of a quarter. Yep, I guess she's the one who needed to have a brain surgeon. Anyway, moving on. She recounts the story and describes it as, quote, Somebody threw a beer bottle way up in the air and it came down on me and knocked me unconscious. There were lots of beer cans still full being thrown around and that was the stupidest thing going on. 
I was between the stage and the bus to the right, and the vibes weren't very good at all around there. It was very packed, and more people were always walking through, stepping on us, and trying to find a place to sit, when there obviously wasn't one. There was no way. It seemed kind of cool early in the morning, like it was going to be a nice day, and it was going to get a lot better, but as the day went on, it just wasn't there at all. Unquote. To add insult to injury, the poor woman was also six months pregnant at the time of this critical injury. Yeah, so I just have to stop here for a second. Once again, I don't understand this need to throw beer bottles at performers at big concert gigs. I mean, I guess, okay, logically I can I can see it kind of because there's so many people and maybe nobody would really recognize who did it or threw it. But once again, like, why are you going to go to these gigs only to cause mayhem? Anyway, I'm, I know I'm kind of uh, being a stickler here, but... I just, I just, you know, just something to discuss, and uh, I'd like to know anybody else's opinions on all this, like slugging people in the face, throwing beer bottles, like, you know, comment below. Let me know what you think or what your thoughts on why people just feel the need to create chaos in these uh, events that are supposed to be, I guess, pleasant. But anyway, moving on, clearly there's some type of trend going on here. All right. After this, the audience apparently knocked one of the Angel's bikes over, and this made the biker gang even more volatile towards the crowd. Another incident occurred, yes, another incident, when Marty Ballin, vocalist of Jefferson Airplane, was punched in the head and knocked unconscious by one of the Hells Angels after he tried to break up a fight between them and the fans. Paul Cantoner, the airplane's guitarist, proceeded to berate the Angels sarcastically by saying over the microphone, quote, Hey man, I'd like to mention that the Hells Angels just uh, smashed Marty Ballin in the face and knocked him out for a bit. I'd like to thank you for that, unquote. One of the members of the Angels named Angel Bill Frisch then stood up to the microphone and responded to the taunt and said, quote, Is this on? You talking to me? I'm going to talk to you. Cantor interrupts, Not talking to you, man. I'm talking to the people that hit my lead singer in the head, unquote. Frisch resumes, You talking to my people? Let me tell you what's happening. You're what's happening, unquote. This argument actually gets interrupted by an angel that is beating somebody in the audience near the stage with a broken pool stick. Uh, Grace Slick, another vocalist for the airplanes, can actually be heard during most of this incident trying to calm everyone down, i.e. the crowd and the angels. So she was doing what she could. And yes, this can be seen in the footage as well. All right. The drummer of uh, Santana, Mike Shriv, who performed before Jefferson Airplane, told the Gravel Dead about the Ballin incident. And upon hearing this, they decided not to play. Yeah, pretty, I mean, yeah, I think that was a smart move. They're probably seeing at this point that the security is not up to par and just there's not enough oversight anywhere to be seen. So probably made a good choice not playing this one. And in all fairness, they're probably looking at it from the standpoint of like, man, I don't want to get hurt here. This situation seems like it's getting kind of dangerous. I mean, you, you got audience throwing beer bottles on performers. You got fans slugging the performers in the face. You got security hitting performers in the face. I mean, all around, this just sounds like a disaster and complete anarchy. So, yeah, I think good on them for saying to hell with it because it just doesn't seem worth it at this point, you know, and that this show is definitely destined for nothing good. So moving on. Apparently, Santana gave a pretty smooth performance with very little incidents from the crowd or the angels for that matter. After all the bands played, minus the Grateful Dead, as previously mentioned, it got dark out and the Rolling Stones took the stage. As disastrous as the situation between the audience and the Angels was already, things went from bad to infinitely times worse. A big fight broke out while they played their third song in the set list, Sympathy for the Devil. It's a great song, we all know it and love it, and the band stopped playing in order to wait for the Angels to restore order. 
To Jagger's credit, it can be seen from the footage of the documentary that he was really trying to calm the seemingly escalating situation down. Uh, yeah, he was definitely trying to keep everything under control, but unfortunately, it really wasn't enough. Up until now, all of these aforementioned situations wouldn't be described as tragic, more than just the casualties of throwing such an expansive show together very last minute. But regretfully, no story is a tragedy without some form of death. After the crowd calmed down from the previously mentioned fights, the Stones resumed playing their set. The biggest incident of all occurred that night during the seventh song of Under My Thumb, amazing song, when a young African-American named Meredith Hunter, dressed in a green lime-colored jumpsuit, who was near the stage, pulled out a 22 caliber revolver with the intent to shoot somebody on the stage. Side note, complete tangent, but... <laughs> a 22 caliber is a pretty small gun so i don't know what type of message he was sending by holding that gun but i mean i guess it's a gun yeah of course but if you're talking about a big caliber pistol that is something this is not anyway it's just just throwing it out there so apparently hunter was really angry because he tried to get on the stage before but an angel punched him and chased him off of it well i mean yeah it, it's very unfortunate to get punched in the face it sucks but maybe you shouldn't have been on the stage. Food for thought. Alan Pricero, an angel, saw the drawn piece and pulled out a long knife, then proceeded to stab Hunter in the back five times. After this, a bunch of angels proceeded to rush Hunter and beat him while he was on the ground, bleeding to death. The footage can be seen, as many other things in this podcast, in the documentary, as it was right near the front left side of the stage. Uh, about the documentary, actually, Give Me Shelter. Um, I'm going to discuss my impressions of it at the end of this podcast. And uh, for whoever saw it and would like to comment on it, yeah, leave some comments. Let me know. Don't be shy. So moving on. As it would be expected, and it goes without saying, but I will say it, Meredith Hunter did not live. Yes, being stabbed in the back five times and being beaten to death uh, while you're on the ground seems like there would be a low survival rate. And sure, he passed. It also goes without saying that this catastrophic concert was heavily criticized. In trying to obsessively create Woodstock, the Rolling Stones managed to create something that was widely perceived as the opposite of everything Woodstock stood for, i.e. peace and love, and ultimately ended the hippie movement. Yes, this, this single event actually, I don't know if it actually ended the movement, but it certainly was perceived as the end. This is the turning of the leaf, new chapter, hippie era, peace and love, dead with this concert. That's a pretty big statement. <laughs> so I don't know if that's what they're going for, given how the band's bad boy reputation and everything, but they certainly succeeded in creating something memorable. Okay, moving on. On December 7th, 1969, a day after the concert, a radio call-in forum on KSAN-FM was hosted with the band to recap the whole tragic event. And one Angel member called in whose name was, you guessed it, Sonny Barger. We have mentioned him before. He was put in charge of the Angel's security also for the show. Barger went on to be quoted for saying on the phone call, Nope, this is a lengthy passage. It can be heard on the Gimme Shelter documentary, as many other things. Quote, 
I didn't go there to police nothing, man. I ain't no cop. I ain't never ever going to pretend to be a cop. And this McJagger, like, put it all on the angels, man. Like he used us for dupes, man. You know, and as far as I can concern, we're the bigger suckers for that idiot that I can ever see. And you know what? They told me if I could sit on the edge of the stage so nobody would climb over me, you know, I could drink beer until the show was over. And that's what I went there to do. But you know what? When they started messing over our bikes, they started it. I don't know if you think we paid $50 for them things, or steal them or pay a lot for them or what ain't nobody gonna kick my motorcycle and they might think because they're in a crowd of a 300,000 people that they can do it and get away with it but when you are standing there looking at something that is your life and everything you got is invested in that thing and you love that thing better than you love anything in the world and you see a guy kick it you know who he is you are gonna get him and you know what they got got I am not no priest tree by any sense of the word. And you can call them people flower children and this and that. Some of them people was loaded on some drugs that it's just too bad that we wasn't loaded on because they come running off the hill yelling, ah, you know, and jump on somebody. And it wasn't always jumping on an angel. But when they jumped on an angel, they got hurt, unquote. So it would appear that the universe would give the Hells Angels a little bit of their just desserts in the form of none other than Evil Knievel, whose real name was Robert Craig Knievel. On March 3rd, 1972, at the Cow Palace in San Francisco, the Angels attended the famous Daredevil stunt, and at one point, they threw a tire iron at him. Oh my god, they're such little cherubs, aren't they? Angels, they are not. (laughs) Anyway, moving on. Knievel, who was pretty outspoken about his hatred towards a notorious gang, attempted to retaliate, but 500 fans from the audience rushed on the grounds to defend him. The fans beat the six gang members so bad they were put into the hospital. Two others were beaten even worse, and they were put into intensive care for a few months. I'm sure based on the footage I saw, they were eating through a glass tube. Anyway, on a side note, Knievel had a great quote, which I'm going to share right now. He said, quote, I don't have problems in life, just situations, unquote. And, and anyway, I just thought that was a kind of a uplifting, positive quote. Moving on. Uh, so this is the section where I'm just going to discuss my final thoughts. And I think I'm going to start with the documentary. Overall, I have to say, I thought the documentary was a little dated and slightly boring because, I mean, I, look, if you like the Rolling Stones, you'll, you'll, you'll probably find nothing wrong with it because there's plenty of that. But overall, in terms of drama and action, yeah, it's a little slow and it, it does look like it's from another time at this point. So that those are generally my criticisms. Um, it just it didn't really hold my attention as much as I would have liked. But anyway, it was good enough to watch and and just get an idea of what was going on at that time. So, and for anybody who loves the Stones, yeah, you should definitely check it out. And so, I guess my final thoughts on this whole um, tragic event. Um, Well, candidly, it just was thrown together very last minute, and they just really didn't know what they were doing, I guess. They shouldn't have done the show at all, from what it sounds like, instead of slapping it all together so quickly. And I'm no stagehand or roadie, but I can safely assume that two days to throw a concert intending to draw 300,000 people isn't enough time. It would also really appear that the Stones penny-pinched a lot on security, rather than hiring professionals to handle it, which would have obviously cost more. They chose to hire a notorious biker gang whose reputation for evil deeds preceded them. When you factor it all in and try to ask yourself that naive question, quote, what can go wrong, question mark, unquote, there's only one answer, everything. <laughs> this is Murphy's Law here, you know, anything that can go wrong will go wrong. And yes, in this situation, it did. Coming back to the present for a second, this situation, I have to say, is is pretty vanilla for what we see nowadays. 
you know, we see, we hear about this stuff all the time, so it's pretty common. But you have to imagine, back then, this is really the first of its kind. So it held a lot of gravity for, for concert goers and just pop culture at large. So just like Columbine was the first, that makes it the biggest and the baddest because that will always be the first. Also, I'm guessing for the Stones that it took a while for them to shake this all off. It's a pretty sad event for everyone. And it definitely wasn't the Woodstock that Mick Jagger envisioned. Anyway, with that, good people, I'm going to sign off. It's been fun. So, yeah, if you have any topics or would like to discuss anything with me, let me know. Comment, DM me, do whatever you want. All right, so be good. Till the next topic. Peace.